Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. I'm super excited to be with you here today. My name is Jake Herring. I'm an elder here at New Life. And uh, this is the beginning of about a six-part series that we're going to be doing uh, on parables, and we're going to go through some different parables. Uh, I'll, I'll start off today, and then uh, Dave Lloyd and Kirk Bodie will do a couple, and then uh, Pastor Brian is probably going to do three at the end of the series. So um, we're super excited about this. Uh, obviously, if you've read the Bible, you know that Jesus speaks a lot in parables, and um, there's some reasons for that. But before we get to that, um, very quickly... Uh, the Latin word of the form parable is parabola, and the Greek is paraboli. In the Greek version, para means beside, and bala means to cast. Just casting two things beside each other and comparing them. And this is often in a story where we, you know, Jesus will tell a story, but he's actually meaning something else. He's comparing two things within a story. Um, he would have done this for a couple of reasons. One, um, it, it is confusing to those who are smart and righteous in their own eyes, but for those who ask for clarity, uh, find the truth in it. The other reason that he may have been speaking in parables is during the Gospels, things were heating up a little bit. The, the, what Jesus was preaching and teaching was in the beginning uh, annoying or subject to question, but it's starting to transfer into um, blasphemous and illegal. And he probably knows it's not his time, so maybe he's speaking indirectly so that he can say what he wants and give the message that he wants without kind of incriminating himself before it's time. Does that make sense? So um, a little bit about me. I love, I love history, and I love historical sites, and I, and I like archaeology, and I like to read about history, especially world history, um, U.S. history. I, I love the Revolutionary War period, the Civil War and the War of 1812. Um, but I've also, in more recent years of my life, uh, really have enjoyed getting into the biblical history and the biblical sites. Uh, and recently, I had the opportunity to travel uh, for work at, to, a, to a conference that was um, actually, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, was alongside the Mediterranean Sea or in the Mediterranean Sea. And I was very excited because I felt this connection to the ancient world, the world that we read about in the Bible. And I was just almost just hoping, can I have this spiritual experience? And I had stood there and I looked out at the water and I just knew, though I'm on the far eastern side of the Mediterranean, I'm looking at the same water that Jesus probably stood on the shores and looked at and, and, that, and that so many characters in the Bible would have seen. So uh, I snuck away early one morning and I wanted to go snorkeling. Um, so I ran down and I plunged in the water and I let out a huge scream because it was so cold. And um, after I calmed everybody down, um, I proceeded on. And again, with just this feeling of, it was quite a holler, but just this feeling of, you know, can I find something or see something that would just create this connection and this awesome experience in the water uh, in the Mediterranean, or at least in the part that I was in, was extremely clear, crystal clear. I could see to the back wall um, just as easily as I, it, like the distance between me and the back wall was the same as you could see just that clearly through this water. It's almost like it was a lens. It's like things that you could see on the bottom of the snorkel um, were, you could just see the detail very, very, very clearly. So I th- you know, I'm thinking about it like I'm in the water. They were swimming in these waters, trying to talk myself into feeling this cathartic f- sense. Um, but 
off in the distance, I can see on the, on the bottom of the sea, uh, there was two objects. I could clearly see they weren't natural, so I swam over to them thinking, oh my goodness, maybe it's a chunk of a chariot wheel or an old sword, maybe a scroll or a tablet that's down there. And um, anyway, I, got, I, got, I swam up to them, and I, and, I, and I looked down through the clear water, and I was probably in about 15 feet of water, and I'm realizing that is an empty aluminum can and a dirty tube sock. And that's the extent of my finding. So I came out of the water. I felt, you know, before that, I felt like some sort of a, of a blend of like Indiana Jones and Jacques Cousteau. And I was going to see and do something great, um, but there let myself down. So having said that, enjoy the parables. Dig in. If we don't understand them right away, keep exploring. That's the point. The point is oftentimes that we don't get them. And we ask Jesus. Jesus often explains them to his disciples later. The Pharisees and the Sadducees may walk away confused, but those that dig in and ask for clarity are the ones that get the truth. Does that make sense? So have that heart and ask, ask Jesus to just help you have that heart um, as, as, we go into the, as we go into the parables. So I mentioned I love maps, um, so I promised my wife I wouldn't do maps again, but I couldn't help it. So, um, so this is basically what you're, what you're seeing here is a modern image that I just simply took all of the labels off of, but this is, would be um, the biblical world or the ancient world as we call it at the time of Jesus. So the yellow dot is the Sea of Galilee, the blue dot north of that or I'm sorry, the green dot north of that is, is Capernaum, where Jesus would have spent so many, so there's so much in the text about that. Flowing out of the south of the, of the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River, which is the, you know, the center of a lot of text, flowing all the way down and ending at the Dead Sea. To the west of that, you'll see the red dot would be Jerusalem, and the blue dot would be Bethlehem. The reason I love maps and I love history is because it makes it real. It's no longer folklore or myth or legend these stories really happened, and you can see the places they were, um, even, if it's, even if it's just a map. And that's why I think they put maps in our Bibles. It helps us to understand it, but it also gives us that feeling of realness. So we'll go ahead and expand out. This is a greater view of the Mediterranean world. Um, again, on the far, far east of the map, you'll see, I think I have, a, yeah, I have a blue dot. That's back where we were, Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem, that's that area. But then I marked some other spots just for fun to try and get you excited to get that mindset and posture of exploration as we go into the parables. The red dot uh, is the island of Patmos, where John would have written the book of Revelation. You could go there if you wanted. The cave is there. The green dot is Crete. Titus was on Crete, and the Apostle Paul wrote him a letter there. Uh, the dot to the north is pink. That's Greece. Uh, Malta is the white dot. That's where the Apostle Paul was shipwrecked on his way to stand trial in Rome. North of that, the orange dot is Rome itself. So it's so much fun to look at these and to know just this is where these places happen. And the yellow dot is where I found that tube sock that's <laughs> on, the, on the map. That went over well. My son Adam and I debated about, I knew, I set the bar high the last time I spoke. I'm a crafty veteran now. This is my third sermon. So I, I know what to do and I know the recipe and I, I, so it, it's make the folks laugh, give them a sermon, pray for them, and, and that gets you home for lunch. And so I, um, the other joke was, was really funny. My son Adam is here, and we, we thought, 
We'll go with the tube sock joke. The tube sock really happened. I didn't really scream. That was hyperbole. The tube sock I did actually see and the aluminum can, um, which was actually an adult beverage can, but this is church, so I cleaned it up. But, um, and I didn't drink it. It was there before I got it. Anyway, um, but the other joke was that we, we, it's always easy to pick on, on animals, and we were laughing at the humor of the elephant. God creates this majestic beast, and he's second to none on earth, he, you know, in, in size and stature and strength and majesty. His doors swing open like that of an old Buick. And the funny part about it is his feet, they just stick down. There's no opposable thumb. How's this guy going to function or do anything? He's so strong, but he can't. He doesn't really have any teeth. He's just like this big. So the funny part is God's solution to all of this was to simply strap a, a vacuum cleaner hose to his face. <laughs> I think the tube sock won, bud. <laughs> I think we got more out of the tube sock. So anyway, we'll go ahead and pray before we get into the parables. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. You're an awesome God. You're a wonderful king. You enjoy us, and the parables we're going to read today are going to hopefully give us a revelation of how you see us. Um, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you come, you join us. Let your spirit fall on this place. Your sons and your daughters have gathered, and we want to know more about your heart. I just have this sensation that we could just put our hands on your wrist and feel the pulse. Let it be, Father. Heavenly Father, I pray you fill these folks, fill your sons and daughters with your spirit. Let them hear. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Soften their hearts. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay. All right. So we're going to go through Luke 15 today. There's three, maybe four parables, depending on your opinion of it, but it doesn't matter. We'll go with three. There's three parables, and... They kind of say the same message, um, but when you read them all and study them, Jesus definitely had a plan and how they're all connected and how they work together. So, Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, and this kind of just sets the stage for where they're at. And again, just like on the map, Jesus is kind of traveling. He's making his way south, um, eventually to Jerusalem, but he's having these encounters along the way. So, Luke 15, 1 through 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, they're annoyed, they're upset. He's clearly doing something wrong. So, sinners, we know what that is. They're sinners. Tax collectors um, are held very low um, in the eyes of, of the people and in the eyes of the Pharisees. They... Um, essentially take advantage and rob the people of their money. They've been given jurisdiction over, over areas um, of the Roman Empire. And long story short, they're in char- they, they, they pay the tax to Rome, but then they're in charge of collecting all the tax, and they take more than they need to by a lot. And everybody knows it. And so they don't like them. Tax collectors don't have a lot of friends. They're, they're greed. They're, they're probably shrewd and greedy. And, and the people know it. So the teachers of the law look at Jesus, and they mutter, they murmur, they, they probably are gossiping, they're, they're complaining. Why would a so-called teacher be, be gathered with sinners and, and tax collectors? And not only that, he's eating with them. Eating represents cleanliness. These are unclean people. 
Why would he do that? And that's what sets the stage for three parables, and the third being probably the most parable in the Bible and um, one of the best short stories ever written. I didn't. That wasn't my idea. I heard that, but I think it's probably true. So Jesus responds to this. But before I go there again, the Pharisees, this, this disrupts the social ladder. The social hierarchy is being disrupted by him doing this. It's not how it should go. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who, didn't, who do not need to repent. Couple of takeaways. First of all, the 99 are, they, they've made it to open ground. That's probably pasture ground. They've made it to where they're supposed to be. So he's not abandoning them in danger. I think that if you're like me, you may look at this and say, well, how did he just leave 99? They're okay. They're in an open place, safe place. They're not in a gorge somewhere where they're going to fall. Um, they're in a safe place. So he leaves them and he pursues the lost sheep. And when he goes to find it, there's no account of the sheep saying, oh, the master, I'll follow him back. The sheep can't find his way back, doesn't have the ability to. The shepherd doesn't even necessarily wait to see if he can. He just throws them on his shoulders. Under the, sh- under the shepherd's power, he takes the sheep back. On his back, carries him back. And then he celebrates. There's rejoicing in heaven. So Jesus ends this parable with basically telling them exactly what he means. He doesn't even leave it hanging. Meaning, I celebrate when someone repents. God's longing to bring us back and redeem him. He longs to forgive. He'll leave the 99, and not only because he has a duty to do so, he doesn't just feel this duty or this obligation. He's ecstatic. He's excited when he finds you and brings you back. Not even mad at you. Longs to forgive you. He goes on. The next parable is the parable of the lost coin, which is probably the least popular of the three parables, but it offers a different perspective that's, that's uh, imperative to understanding God's heart. It reads this, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweeps the house, and search carefully until she finds it? By the way, uh, one coin out of ten would have been at least the equivalent of a day's wages. This is something you would look for. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. What I didn't realize, normally I read this and I think it's basically saying the exact same thing as the lost sheep parable, and it is, but there's something more here. The coin is an inanimate object. This parable gives us the perspective that regardless of our feedback to God, we're precious, worth searching and finding. We don't even, in the, in, the, in the previous parable, we still don't even get an account of how the sheep reacted. This is about God's heart towards us. God's heart towards you. So much so that he, I mean, you ever lost, you, 
say you lose um, your driver's license, or even more importantly, you just you lose your keys, you don't know where it's at, or you lose your whole wallet, you don't know where it's at. You can't quite even function. You can't go on with your day. Even though you might not even trying to be leave, you, you may not be leaving to go somewhere. You'll stop everything you're doing, and your, you'll scour your house just so you can relax, knowing, I found it, right? So she's down on her hands and knees, sweeping the house, finds this coin, and I, you can almost see the image. You know, I, I was going to get down on my hands and knees and do that, but I was rehearsing this in my basement, and I cramped in my hamstring, and I thought, that could happen to me on stage, so just imagine that I do it um, <laughs> so we don't have a, a recordable injury. Anyway. But it's almost like she's down on her hands and knees. She lights a lamp in the middle of the day, which usually isn't done towards night. She, she invests in this search, finds it. And sometimes when I find something, it's like you're so relieved, you just sit there and look at it a minute before you even grab it. Like, there's the coin. Picks it up, doesn't end there. So excited to be able, that she calls everybody together and they celebrate. The coin doesn't even know it's a coin. This is about God's love towards you. Not about how even, I mean, it is so true that yes, you should be thankful and grateful. That is all true. But what he's trying to say is, this is about my heart, my passionate love for people. That's what this is about. So when you read that, that's I think the point of the coin, is that it's just, this is just how much God desires you. And his desire for you doesn't require your desire for him breaks his heart, and therefore he rejoices when you're found. Okay. So he goes on from there. You guys with me? Is that making sense? So Luke 15, 11 through 16, the lost son. Jesus continued. He takes no breaks in the text. There's, there's no breaks. He just goes all the way through this as he's speaking. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant land and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had, been, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So it's pretty clear here, but we'll go through it anyway. He had everything. He had the security of his father's land and his father's home. Um, He took the blessing, and he left. And in the process, what he's saying is... Just in, just in our time, you don't get an inheritance until the person passes away, usually, right? It was the same then. He, he shouldn't have gotten this inheritance until his dad passes away. So what he's really kind of saying is, I don't value the re- to spend time with you through your remaining days. I don't value you. I would like to just basically expedite this process to your death. I just wish it were here now. So not only so I could get yes, so I could get the inheritance, but also then he leaves and he fulfills the other half of that wish. I'll be apart from you now. He just chooses to walk away from his father, sticks his thumb right in his eye. That's what he does. After that, he spends all the money, 
gets deep into sin, and now he's enslaved to sin, which is what's represented with the pigs. He's not even only sinning. He's now enslaved to the sin. He works for the swine, down wallowing in the mud. He's stuck there. He's filthy. Isn't that sin? Doesn't it feel like that? It does for me. Why would I come here and do this? Why would I give up? Because you thought, you believed the lie. It's, just, it's like Eden all over again. Why would you, because they believed the lie. Why would you eat the fruit? Why would you, you, got, you left Eden because you, they believed the lie. He does this too. He thinks there's something better out there. There's not. He was where he should have been and he left. So, as we know, he has a lack of fulfillment, a lack of nourishment, suffering from hunger, loneliness, regret, and shame. So the scripture goes on. When he came to his senses, he said, some translations say when he came to himself, he's finally realizing as he's down in the mud feeding the pigs, unable to even eat what the pigs are eating. That's really low. He's unable to even do that. And he's realizing, oh my, what have I done? I've been there. What have I done? That feeling. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So that's his plan. He's going to go back. He's going to tell his father, I'm sorry, and appeal to him that maybe I know I've squandered my inheritance, I've squandered the wealth, I removed myself from your home, I'm not even asking for that back. Maybe I'll just work hard enough to where I'm just above the mess that I'm in now. At least I'll be able to eat. So he's going to figure, he's got his plan to fix this himself. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So remember the lost sheep, the lost coin, same scenario. This guy is excited. The father, who's God, obviously, is super excited. In these days, uh, men, patriarchs, didn't run. Um, children ran Women may have ran, but you would have lifted your robe and ran so that it wasn't dragging. So you didn't show your legs. So for him to show this raw emotion, pick up his robe and run down the lane to his son is extremely significant. He's eager. He loves him, passionate about him, thrilled. If that you would think of most of us, or at least we would think how this would go, is you'd sit there and you'd say, well, I guess I'll hear him out. You know, and he, he had better have a pretty good explanation for why he did what he did. doesn't even waste time doing that. He just runs to him. That's the heart of God. That's the lost coin. That's the lost sheep. That's his heart towards you. So he runs to him, and he kisses him. So while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Wow. Luke 15, 21 through 24. The son said to him, Father, 
I've sinned against heaven and against you, which was what he was going to say. And he genuinely knows that. He was in the mud. He knows he messed up. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it pauses. Remember, he was going to say, I'll work as a, as a hired hand. I'll, be, you know, I'll work amongst the servants. That's his plan is I'll kind of work my way back or at least work my way into okay. The father doesn't even let him say another word. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. That's that, same, that's that same shepherd that goes after the lost sheep, the same lady searching, searching, searching for the coin that doesn't have any appreciation, but he searches anyway, and he says, put a robe on him. So he's been, the, the, the son's been in the mud feeding the pigs. He's filthy, which is symbolic of our sin. We come to him filthy. He puts the best robe on us. Take these old dirty clothes off. You, my son, you, my, son, my daughter, belong in fine linens that I give you. Undeserving, but he does it anyway. And he says, put sandals on his feet. In that time, slaves and servants had bare feet. Obviously, he was a, he was, he was a servant where he was at feeding the pigs. He comes back, he clearly doesn't even have any shoes on. So he's now, he now looks as though he's a slave. He's in bondage to someone else. So he says, put sandals on his feet. Free men wear sandals in this time. Slaves don't. You're free. You're no longer a slave to sin. Take my clean robe, the best of my robes, put sandals on your feet. And then he says, put a ring on his finger. Adorn him with jewels. There's the restoration of the inheritance that he squandered. He's, he's giving him back everything that he lost on his own. Isn't that awesome? And he's so excited that he throws a feast. He fills the fat. He, he, he fills the fat and calf. Which we could go really into that. You would maybe only do that once a year. It's extremely expensive. You only have one protein at a meal. wasn't common because it was so expensive. So if you were going to do that, it was a really special occasion. And you invite all your friends and family. That's what it means to kill the fat and calf. It's a celebration. Maybe once a year you do something like that. Okay. The story could end there, that could be it, and we would all walk away feeling great. And we would know, and it's all so true, we would know about, okay, now I'm starting to see the heart of God towards me, his, his passionate pursuit of me. Not just him waiting to come and forgiving me out of duty um, or because he loves me, but he doesn't actually like me. No, he likes you. He loves you. He enjoys your presence. He ecstatically celebrates when he finds you and when you come back to him. Not just when you got saved, but now when you repent and you make your heart right with him also. It's still true for you. Okay, but the story doesn't end there. The elder brother, Luke 15, 25 through 30. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called, out, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Remember that. He went out and pleaded with him. But he answered the father, the father, Look, 
All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. You read that, and if you're like me, you kind of go, that makes sense, and I think what the message here is going to be is that it doesn't always make sense what God does, and we should be excited about the things that he's excited about. Even if we're already saved, we should be excited that other people are coming into the kingdom and getting some of the Father's attention. I thought that's what it was. He goes on to verse 31 through 32. The father replies to the oldest son. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So again, I thought that the older brother was almost justified. It was just a lesson of, you know, put yourself aside, which is true and it's biblically accurate. But, Remember at the very beginning of this, step out of the parables and remember who was Jesus talking to and why. He was talking to the Pharisees because they saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors and they didn't like it. They're almost like, wait a minute. We've been here doing this whole thing. We've been following all the rules and all the regulations. We've served what we thought you wanted. We've been doing what you thought you wanted us to do in serving. Look how righteous we are. Surely we've tipped the scales into the direction of of heaven, right? We've done enough, right? My whole life I've served you. I've done everything you've asked. Followed the rules. (laughs) But he's still not inside the party. He's not at the dinner, is he? No. Whether the people or the characters in the story are saved yet or not, he's not right with God. The older son isn't. Brian, uh, Pastor Brian asked me to listen to a sermon by a guy named Tim Keller, and I did. So a lot of what I'm about to say, I just want to cite the source, a lot of what I'm about to say I gathered from, from sermons researching this. So if I say something um, that may sound like something you've heard, I want to, I want to be clear about that. Um, I didn't obviously borrow it verbatim, but just to be careful, I want to make sure that I cite that. Um, the Pharisees, everything that they heard and they knew about how to approach God, they're realizing is wrong, or, God, or Jesus is trying to tell them that it's wrong, right? They're seeking their own Savior through acts of work and righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6, For we have all become as one that is unclean, and all our, all our unrighteousnesses, that's an actual word, righteousnesses are as a polluted garment. Some translations will say all of our righteous acts are filthy rags. And all we do phases a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. All of their righteousness as they bring that before God and say, look what I've done. And he says, compared to my robe, that's a filthy rag. You've been knitting your own robe and it's not half as good as my robe. Not good enough for the party. You can't make your own robe. You need to let me put mine on you. Right? Let me forgive your sin. Let me clean up those dirty clothes. You've been striving this whole time, and you've missed the point. Even the younger son kind of misses the point. 
but he has sense enough to just stop and receive and let, let his father put the robe on him, right? He doesn't stand there and say, no, I'm not coming in. I need to earn this. His original plan is he was going to kind of earn it back, right? But he's so overwhelmed by the grace and the love and the forgiveness of his father, and he's realizing the passionate pursuit that his father has for him, that he just puts the robe on and he goes in and, and he enjoys the party. He, takes, he, lets, he stands in the place of his, his, his restoration and the redeeming of his inheritance. So, to really break this down, the robe is Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross that washes our sin away. Isaiah says, come, reason together. Let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Just like the younger brother came to himself, reasoned this out. Wait a minute. I'll just go back to my dad and admit that I was wrong. Can you do that? If you can, he'll wash you clean. He'll make you white as snow. Letting Jesus be our Savior and washing, with his, washing us with his blood is the only way into the party. Let him put the robe on us. John 14, verse 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't matter how hard you work. Uh, last week, Dick Stinson made sure that I said this was, this was Jesus in call-up. You know how Brian went through call-up in the, the truth matrix? This is what it looks like, grace and truth. This is a hard truth to the Pharisees, but he's also begging them to come in. He says he was pleading, come in. But they're standing there. We don't know if they go in or not. The story ends right there, as it was also doing in the natural realm right there at the time. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. We don't know. Are they going to go, oh, I see it now. but he's pleading with them. Romans 3.22, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Again, no other way. Can't earn it on your own. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Those riches, just let him adorn your hands with jewelry, put sandals on your feet, a right road. His, his grace is rich. It's not just this begrudging, let him come back. I'll accept him back one more time. No, he loves to show you grace and mercy, enjoys it. Revelation 7, 14, I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isaiah 61.10, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has clothed me, not a, not a robe that I made for myself, and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and a bride adorns herself with jewels. This isn't what we think of God. There's no, who, who is like this? Who does that? He's got every reason in the world to just say, you left. You squandered your inheritance. I, I guess I'll let you work as a servant, but you don't even deserve that. That's actually true, but he doesn't do that. All right. We'll start to close here. Um, couple, one more verse here. Micah 17, or 7, 8 through 19. Again, who is God like you, who pardons sin and forgives transgressions, of the remnant of his inheritance. 
You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. He's so excited about you. He's so in love with you. He so wants you to just come. That's it. So whether you're saved, meaning that you've given your life to Jesus Christ, given him your your past and asked him for forgiveness, or you're not, this is for you. But if you're not, I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and you can just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I come before you as one who has squandered my inheritance and gone after my own way and and pursued what I thought I wanted. And I feel like I'm wallowing around in the mud with the pigs. And I just want to come home. Will you come into my heart and forgive me of my sins? All I can offer, Father, is my ask for forgiveness and my desire to follow you. And if you're already saved and you've already committed to Jesus, but there's just an area of your life you just want to give back to God, don't wait. Just do it now. He's longing. He's searching out for you. Sometimes we sin and we feel like, I better, I'll feel bad for a few days or a week, and then I'll feel like I've been good enough for long enough to come back before God. That's a lie. Come back right now and say, Father, it's, it's me. David says, It's me, your beloved. So come back before God. God, we're here, your beloved sons and daughters. Forgive us. Remind us that we're adorned in your robe, wearing your ring with your sandals on our feet. We're free men and women. We are child. We are children, sons and daughters of the living God. Forgive us, Father. Jesus, thank you for your message. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your passionate pursuit of us though we don't deserve it we're so glad you're here in jesus name we pray amen